Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 41, the one about the paradox of productivity, work-life balance, Elgato Camlink, and the film The Mist. Let's get on with the show. And hello and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more news, tech content and wisdom from the world of marketing. As always, I'm joined by the man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the marketing and finance podcast and the author of Cats, Mats and Marketing Plans. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. Hello, everybody. And my co-host is also a man on a mission this time to demystify digital marketing is the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Thank you very much, Roger. And thank you to you, listeners and viewers, for your support. We've had a couple of lovely weeks, actually, Roger, with some lovely yeah. little thank yous and well done messages. I'm thinking, looking at my notes at Michelle McCarthy Morgan. We had also Simon Clayton last week saying hello and thank you. Justin Messenger, big supporter of the show, and Eternal who was very surprised to see his name next to Tom Cruise on Twitter. But there's a reason for that. Your friend, Janine Capaldi, was also in touch. Andrew Lopez, David Nihil, DJ from Florida, a new follower. We also have Peter Barton from Candidarum, David Bennett. And in your case, Monsieur Roger Edwards, you also had a message from Mark Ritson. Hey, on Twitter. Yeah, well, I have featured his articles in my content spotlights quite a few times so uh, maybe that uh, shout out was uh, a little overdue mark <laughs> <laughs> but no thanks very much you know we have immense fun roger and i creating this podcast is really pushing uh, our skill set and boundaries as speakers as video editors and content producers but to, to know that a handful of you are enjoying it too and sending us your well dones and thank you messages makes a big difference so thank you very much roger this is episode 41. I did scan, read the notes. There's a lot to get through. So let's begin with In the News. According to a 2021 Forrester and AliExpress report, two-thirds of European consumers are interested in shopping online via live streaming, interactive games and video content, also known as shoppertainment. Right, well, we have some podcasting news, Roger, with Spotify rolling out timestamps and the option of sharing a particular point to start listening from. And Audacity has been acquired by Muse Group, the owners of MuseScore and Ultimate Guitar. Netflix is allegedly working on a new project called N+. The online platform would contain podcasts related to popular series, including interviews with the cast and the music from your favourite shows. Well, according to a research by Vodafone and Enterprise Nation, about half of Britain's SMEs are not using the tools they have invested in, blaming not having the time to understand how to make them work efficiently. During ITV's coverage of the Brit Awards, KFC brought back its popular It's Finger Licking Good tagline from the first time since dropping it last year with an advert showcasing the passion KFC fans have for the brand. Selfridges customers can now get married in the retailer's flagship store on Oxford Street thanks to three micro-wedding packages called Just the Two of Us, Earth Lovers and All Out Extraordinary. 
The Data and Marketing Association UK, the DMA, has published the Global Privacy Principles, a set of seven key principles for the global data and marketing industry, serving as both an ethical framework and best practice guidelines. And finally, ice cream brand Hagen Dats is bringing back the floating cinema experience to London. This year's lineup of films, Roger, include cult classics, sing-alongs and rock-coms such as Pulp Fiction, Bohemian Rhapsody and Notting Hill. Talking about rom-coms, I mean, <laughs> if you're going to get married, you know, you could you could get married in a, a beautiful country church. You could fly off to Las Vegas to get married there. You could go to somewhere in the Caribbean and get married on a on a beautiful beach while the waves lap up against the the sand. But why would anybody choose to go and get married in Selfridges? I mean, nothing against Selfridges per se, but there must be more romantic places to get married than that. So we're going to go there then, are we, Roger? <laughs> well, I chose it on purpose because at first I was thinking, really? That feels like jumping the bandwagon of, you know, it felt like a PR stunt, but in fact, they're not interested. But actually, Roger, if you think about it, the countless number of weddings that has been cancelled for the last 12 to 14 months, they don't have enough venues and weekends and dates to actually um, you know, satisfy ah, the demand. It. So Selfridges is is providing a solution. However, I would agree with you. As someone that's worked in London and was actually walking up on Oxford Street for nearly two and a half years during my lunch break, that would be the last uh, option on my list. But you know, London is very attractive to international tourists, so maybe that's the market they're going after. Possibly. And and, and instead of getting a nice horse-drawn <laughs> carriage to drop you off at Selfridges, you could just get the tube, couldn't you? Or, or some of those um, tuk-tuks, you know, that they have, mate. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> that's absolutely right. So, and Kea, go on. No, exactly so, Roger. A few months ago, you were the uh, um, kind of host of the show. And at the time, you brought the, the announcement about the strapline from KFC to be removed from all advertising. So I think it's only right that you should be the one today to bring the news that it's come back. Yeah, I mean, in fairness to KFC, I think they did a really good sensible thing here uh, because they they played upon the fact that the pandemic reduced our ability to uh, get up close to people and I just think they thought that finger licking good was just a little bit too personal wasn't it, it was a bit too close especially as we are being encouraged by the government to wash our hands all the time so I thought they were quite clever in all the different iterations of things that they went through and we, we mentioned a couple of few weeks ago where they were putting banners outside other brands stores like on, on Oxford Street funnily enough uh, but it's nice to see that finger licking good tagline coming back not only because it's a great tagline but also because it's another hint that we're slowly moving mm. back to normality the advert is great fun i mean i'm not a fan of the products but i get it i understand you know the loyalty towards the brand it is a lovely montage of the fans of the brand including actually people being arrested by the police for gathering too, too close to the store <laughs> so i think they also went there in terms of you know being very uh, open about the ups and downs of brand loyalty i wanted to ask you your reaction to netflix Net Plus, so yet another online platform, but this one giving essentially extending the enjoyment of one's favorite series with interview type content, but also the soundtrack and the music of your favorite series. 
Uh, I'm not sure how I felt about this when I first read it. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I don't miss it from being there on Netflix at the moment. I don't watch a film and then think, oh, Netflix, I wish you had the soundtrack there for me to listen to, or I wish that you had some extra interviews. So my initial reaction was, well, is it really only targeting a very small number of people who genuinely want to dig that much deeper? But then I thought, well, actually, pretty much every DVD or Blu-ray that I've bought over the last decade or so has included a whole host of extras, which I've actually been quite happy to watch mm, and listen point. to. So I, I guess what they're doing is they're just creating the online version of the extras that we've become used to on Blu-rays and DVDs. I have friends who simply don't understand why I would bother watching the movie again with the director's mm. commentaries or watching all the making offs and, and extras. But I suppose that comes with being a complete you know, film buff. And I know that the number one podcast in the UK right now is called Mad About Line of Duty. Oh. And this is about a bunch of people talking about the episodes of this obviously very, very popular series. And, and I think when there is a, a fan base behind a, a brand like KFC or behind a series, extending the enjoyment through additional content, uh, it kind of makes sense to me. I'm just questioning whether you need to the platform. Can it just be on Netflix all in? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and will enough people actually pay the extra to, to have it? I mean, let's face it, Netflix is quite expensive already mm. if you go for the full package they've only recently just increased the prices by two pounds a month so whether people will be prepared to pay even more well we'll see <laughs> we'll see so as the man championing simplicity in marketing i must ask about shop attainment <laughs> now this combination of two words is called a portmanteau it isn't is it? indeed it? A portmanteau or portmanteau which is a word i only learned recently in one of our favorite shows the uh, you know um uh house of games <laughs> i learned portmanteau <laughs> from there it's ah, it, I, I i i do rally against jargon and, and and all of that sort of thing as you know and normally this sort of thing would make me cringe but ah, it's fine. It's a bit of fun, and and it relates to it relates to consumers doing things that consumers like. So it feels a little bit less like um, a strategic staircase or a paradigm shift. Mm. I have to say. But I think someone's building to the the point made earlier about Netflix, which is this idea of extending the. Um, information experience of a customer. So instead of having a product and a price and the delivery date, you can do so much more. And, and I, I look forward to seeing what people are going to do. And finally, before we move on to the next segment, the mm -hmm. Data and Marketing Association in the UK, one of the most active body when it comes to this issue of data protection and privacy, a global privacy principle, this idea of a worldwide standard that people can follow as opposed to this kind of really haphazard affair that we have, depending on which country you come from and where you're visiting website and where they are hosted. There's all manner of things that can happen to your data. Yeah, and, and this has been brought into the spotlight recently, hasn't it, by Apple's latest update to their operating system, iOS 14.5, which has actually in introduced this... Um, this system where you now have to say that you're happy for for apps and websites like Facebook, for example, to track your data. And from what I've read, the vast majority of people who've updated to 4.14.5 uh, have actually 
um, activated this new system. So, of course, Facebook and anybody involved in Facebook art, um, advertising are actually quite worried at the moment because their ability to do what they've been doing and target people with specific ads has been absolutely hammered. Now, on the one hand, it, it seems quite nice in some ways to, to wipe that smug smile off Zuckerberg's <laughs> face. But on the other hand, you know, advertising pays for all of these free apps that we've become used to. So I don't know whether that's taken it too far, but I think it's great to have these key principles and if we can get them adopted globally then i think that that can only be a good thing so i suggest we do roger we keep a watching brief on these global privacy principles let it kind of uh, take time for people to review them and react and maybe it will become part of our next segment the content spotlights Now, as some of our viewers and listeners will know, this is probably Roger's favorite segment. We surprise each other with the discovery from the interweb, an article, a podcast, a video that can help us reflect on what it means to be a marketer in the 21st century. So, Roger, what have we got for us this week? Pascal, this is a very short article, and I've actually put it in the spotlight, more of a sort of conversation starter and a debate starter. And, and I think that this is the sort of debate that we're going to have today, Pascal, where I would love our audience to chip in as well. So after you've heard Pascal and I discuss this, please feel free to let us know your thoughts by adding your comments to the video or getting in touch with us on Twitter. Now, we've all come across Gary Vaynerchuk, and he has this phrase which is called hustle, which is it's a word I absolutely detest and it basically means just working hard but there is this sort of hustle mentality that is prevalent amongst especially amongst marketing people like ourselves and, and supposedly amongst entrepreneurs and it just means work 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 without having a break you know 16 20 hours a day you know hustle mentality and all these, all sorts of people write about, oh, I have this routine where I get up at 4 a.m. and I go for a 10-mile run and then I do yoga, then I write in my diary and then I have a cup of coffee and then I do press-ups and then I get on with the work and, and I work 20 hours a day and then I have half an hour's sleep and I'm earning £7 million a year for doing so. And sometimes it gets a little bit annoying and sometimes you can see that it's clearly BS. But this seeps into corporate culture as well and and I've seen people who have been working in big corporates just like I used to do where it's almost expected that you work every single second of your day and that if your diary isn't full of meetings or if you haven't got back-to-back -back work then it's almost a disciplinary offense and this hustle culture seems to have just indoctrinated itself into everything that we do work-wise these days, which is why this article that I spotted in Inc. magazine by Jessica Stillman really resonated with me. The title is, To Get More Done, Embrace the Paradox of Productivity and, while, and Why Leaving Slack in Your Days Will Actually Make You More Productive. And it's a very short article, as I say, Pascal, and it's really just saying... You know, don't listen to the Gary Vaynerchuks of the world and the Elon Musks who, who are only going to sleep for three hours a day, because this can ultimately 
make you worse at working. It can actually mess with your health as well. It can mess with your health and well-being. You can, you, it could lead to stress. It could lead to heart disease. It could lead to high blood pressure. It could lead to mental illness. And, and she's actually saying, look, it can be better to plan downtime in your working day. So instead of boasting about getting up at 4am and going for the run and doing yoga or whatever it is, it's actually okay to say, do you know what? At three o'clock every day, I go and have a bath or at three o'clock every day, I go for a walk around the block and I listen to my favourite band playing in, on, on Spotify. But because by building in downtime, you're not breaking some work um, rule you're actually protecting yourself and therefore enabling yourself to do better work. And maybe it sounds like the bleeding obvious. And as I say, it's a very, very short article. But when I read it, I thought, you know what? I would almost like this to be framed. And it's such a short article, you could probably put it in one frame and actually put it on the wall in the majority of big corporates. And for those of us who are working from home, self-employed, actually put it on the wall in front of us as well so that we can be reminded that you don't have to be booked out back to back and you don't have to be working 20 hours a day and that it is okay to actually plan in downtime because ultimately that will make you better. Do you know what is incredible, Roger, is when I describe in a moment my selection for today, you're going to be even more surprised than usual about okay. how closely aligned they are. But I think we are ultimately just a mirror of the mood, what is happening globally. I know that in yeah. the UK, uh, or perhaps it's internationally, this is of course recorded at the time of International um, Mental Wellness and yes. I went to Mental Wellbeing Week. But also I think the lockdown restrictions as are people who are probably working very hard, not necessarily very smart, to reconnect with actually this, the, getting the balance right. And, and I think mm. you know the author here is capturing the mood so, so well. But for me, it's also timely to hear this very wise reminders because when in weeks or months, depending where we are in terms of lockdown measures and, and restrictions across sectors, Roger, people are going to go back to more of a full-time form of uh, work, uh, working pattern. And I'm sensing as well, people thinking, well, I've had a year where it's been a bit weird. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to double down. Mm. I'm going to work longer hours to make up for the deficit of yeah. the last few months and few weeks. And that is not at all what you want to do. The likelihood is you're working far too hard before lockdown. Lockdown puts you into a balanced position and you don't want to compromise and damage probably the, the, the good work that you put in to be far more productive because of going all those constraints and also looking after yourself so much better because you have more time with the family, you took time to walk, listen to the bands and so on. And for me, there's two, there's almost two call outs here. One to leaders to look after your staff well who may be under the impression they have to work a bit harder to make up for that deficit, as I called it. But also if you are a solopreneur or if you are very much, you know, a master of your own kind of diary, don't just cram a lot of working hours into it. Just add elements that are more to, to do with uh, your own well-being and actually, as she pointed out, it's about this downtime that makes you more productive, which is essentially the paradox. 
Yeah, and uh, I, I saw somebody else post, uh, I think it was on LinkedIn, I can't even remember who it was now, actually said to, uh, the question was, how long do you leave between meetings? And he did a little poll and it was like back to back, 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour. And the majority of people ticked back to back, which again reinforces what we're saying here is that people completely block out the day. Now, I personally, um, in busier times, will leave at least 15 minutes between each um, um online meeting whatever it is or half an hour if I can make it simply because I think I owe it to my clients to prepare properly for the meeting and I don't think you can if you're back to back and you finish one call you're out of breath you're you're stressed you quickly make a coffee and then straight on to the next call Uh, and it was quite interesting that most people were in that back-to-back situation so I think we can learn a lot from what Jessica said in this article now Pascal you've really really made me interested now in what you're going to talk about so let's hear your content spotlight so, so once again, I chose mine uh, independently. I didn't discuss yeah. it with you. Uh, I went for a podcast that really arrived in a very timely fashion. So I'll give you some context. Um, from pretty much you know, today, I'm taking two weeks off. So I'm taking like a holiday. Mm. And it's interesting. I feel a little guilty about this, Roger, because I don't believe I've worked hard enough to deserve a holiday. But I do feel tired. I do feel like I've kind of exhausted, you know, um, batteries. But of course, in my head, I'm thinking, well, I've not traveled as much. I've not worked the long days I used to. I'm not worthy of this break. And I was very, very tempted to accept a few meetings here or there to accept doing a proposal until I came across this episode from Upreneur.fm. You know mm-hmm. that the host is our good friend, Chris Ducker the author of The Rise of the Upreneur and also the host of the Upreneur Summit and the inventor of many, many coaching programs. He has been running Upreneur.fm for many years. I reckon by the end of this calendar year, he'll have approached nearly 500 episodes. So I'm thinking Chris should be picked up by Spotify, the way Joe Rogan was as well. (laughs) But he had back for probably the third or fourth time his good friend, Michael Hyatt. And Michael mm-hmm. Hyatt may not be known as, as much as he is in the US and the UK, but is a is an author, is a productivity and leadership coach, is also an early adopter of blogging, podcasting. He was doing video podcasting before everyone, everyone knew the term. He's mm-hmm. just a great, great guy. But interestingly, he would not call himself a content marketer or even a um, digital marketer. He's passionate about leadership management and being obviously a successful business owner. He just uses content, Roger, to convey messages. And it so happens that because he comes from a publishing background, Michael has released and published 10 books mm. pretty much once once a year, which is incredible. As someone that is still finding excuses not to write his first book, unlike you, Roger. And the new book that he co-wrote with his daughter, Megan, is called Win at Work and Succeed at Life. The subtitle is as follows, which I can find in, in my in my note, which is Five Principles to Freeing Yourself from the Cult of Overwork. <laughs> which is exactly what you just said a, a moment ago, creating and maintaining a work-life balance. Now, two things. I want you know still the thunder. This conversation is to be enjoyed thoroughly by being listened to from start to finish. And at times actually very, very touching because both Chris and and Michael touch on obviously the impact on working too hard on family and the like. So really uh, great timing for me to kind of go, I should not feel guilty about taking time out. 
very quickly, Roger, and I get your reaction. These are the five principles to freeing yourself from the cult of overwork. Interestingly, they do have a go at the term hustle and um, no, um, Elon Musk as well, which is, I think, very <laughs> telling. So number one, um, Michael says, embrace constraints and commit fully to start and end time when it comes to work. And don't kid yourself about saying, well, I'll do it in the evening, I'll do it at the weekend, or as I was doing, I'll accept a meeting during my holidays. You've got to make it work within the time constraints. And if you can't, then start to prioritize better. And if you can't, yeah. delegate more. And if you can't, get rid of the activity and be feel good about it. So this embracing of your start and end times is very, really important. Second principle, work is not the only way to define your life and to define your identity and to give your life directions. So you've got to make sure that your diary is multidimensional, which you mentioned a moment ago, Roger, right? Yeah. It can't just be meetings after meetings. It's got to be other activities that define you as an individual. Work-life balance is truly possible. It's a third third kind of principle. It's not a myth. It's not you know, some kind of uh, strange things that happened you know, 10 years ago. But the way it works is because you make quality time that are of equal importance for the different aspects of your multidimensional life. So what he's saying is all too often we give work more importance. So we'll sacrifice the trip to the park with the kids. We'll sacrifice the um, you know, long lunch with the wife. We'll sacrifice within the book. We'll sacrifice paying, playing Fortnite, Roger, because yeah. work is giving its importance. It's not balanced in terms of time. It's balanced in terms of importance, which is you know, work is not essentially, has got the right to you know, override the other activities and you've got to get, get that right. But I think you're back to culture, which I can get a reaction. The first one is what you mentioned a moment ago, which is there is incredible value, even though it's not tangible, in non-achievement activities, such as mm. reading a book, listening to music, gardening, uh, talking to a friend, all those things strangely that are the most rewarding are never on the to-do list and he's asking us all of us to challenge ourselves to say, why is that so allow yourself those non kind of tangible activities not one that you can measure activities sometimes you could feel guilty about but they are there to help you breathe and recharge and guess what which you'll agree whenever you do those non-achievement uh, types activities that's when your best ideas for the business will come to yeah. you and finally, fifth principle, rest is part of how and is the condition for meaningful work and to be more focused and productive. So it's not about working harder that you become more focused and more productive. It's about working less and applying the embracing constraints and having a multidimensional life. And the reason why I picked it is because I was about to become guilty of accepting work during uh, time that I've kind of archived down, but also a sense out there, this guilt about the last year has not been great. Let me work even harder in 2021, 2022. Wow. Mm. I mean, we couldn't have been closer in our Quite. content spotlights. It's, it's, it's uncanny. And <laughs> and listeners and, and viewers, seriously, we did not talk to each other before we picked these pieces of content. I mean, Jessica's article in Inc. Magazine could almost be the prologue to the the podcast between Chris and Michael, the way that we've we've described it today. Incredible. I mean, Michael Mike, Michael Hyatt's an interesting gentleman. I've heard his appearances on um, Chris's podcast a number of times. 
he's quite a spiritual guy and, and, and quite a religious guy as well. And I'm not particularly religious or spiritual, but Michael's one of the only people who can get spiritual and religious without being overly preachy, if, if, you, mm. if you know what I, I mean. So I actually find him really easy to listen to, and he's got that sort of work-life balance voice about him anyway. So, yeah, hopefully any, everybody watching and listening to the show this week will take a few moments to think about these two pieces of content and maybe just use them as a mirror and, and look at your own routine and, and just see whether there are any changes that you need to make yourselves. Absolutely. And, and I think, once again, you and I discover, and sometimes we are discovered by the content pieces we choose as a mirror of the mood out there globally. Yes. And I think I think it's just so timely, and I'm so pleased that you and I, without talking to each other, to something very similar, which I think strengthen, gives more strength to the message today. Definitely. Wow. Thank you again, Roger. Okay. Well, let's move on to our next segment, which is Marketing Tech and Apps. So in this part of the show, Roger and I bring to your attention new apps, new tech that can make life easier as a content creator and producer. So Roger, what have you been testing or looking into this week? Right, couple of things. I've been doing a few extra um, speeches um, at virtual events recently, Pascal. I think I've mentioned over the last few shows that I've been looking at creativity tips and a few things to help with the with the actual presentation preparation and I also started having a look at the quality of the image now this webcam that we're using I'm using today for the show is one that I've been using for at least the last three years it's a Logitech 922 it's about the standard that most uh, that most people who use webcams at least with Windows have this sort of webcam and it's fine it's absolutely fine it it generates an HD image, but it's not obviously as beautiful as a DSLR camera. It's probably not even as good as the image you would get from a from a mobile phone or even a GoPro. And again, I've mentioned this in, in past uh, episodes, I've tried things where you can link your mobile phone via Wi-Fi to an app, which then allows your image to be brought into a uh, a program like Zoom or or Skype or whatever it might be, but I often find that there's quite a big delay between the video and the audio using some of those, and it's probably the Wi-Fi signal. But even plugging the phone in using the USB doesn't seem to solve that. So I, I just I started getting obsessed with this having a better image and I was going down the route of thinking it's about time that I upgraded to the Logitech Brio which actually captures images in 4k but it's also got a bigger sensor and it can suck more light in and the picture's better but the more I actually watched reviews of the Brio for a £200 price tag, I wasn't convinced that I was going to get the upscale from the, the 922 that I use here. And therefore, I went back to something which I did look at a while back and almost discounted. And that was buying a video capture card, which I can plug into the back of my PC. And then I can plug my DSLR camera, my Lumix G85, and actually use that as a webcam. So I bit the bullet. And I've bought the uh, bought it. I actually 
bought it. It's plugged into the back of my uh, computer. I'm actually not using um, the uh, Lalumix today because I've also ordered um, a, an AC battery adapter thing that I can plug into the camera. Uh, because at the moment, if I started using the Lumix, you could just guarantee that the battery would have run out halfway through our recording, and I didn't want that to happen. But maybe next week or the week after, we'll see what the difference in the picture will be. But because it's an HDMI socket that you're actually plugging the um, camera into, it doesn't have that latency problem that you have with the Wi-Fi that we've experienced with some of these other gizmos. So I've detected very little delay. In fact, there's no delay between the audio and the video itself. There might be a slight delay between it going into the program, but that shouldn't actually matter because the two things will match up. So that, I'm really excited about that. And it means that I can, once I get my AC adapter for the camera as well, I'll be able to use that for going live more often and using the camera. And the second thing is doing something a little bit more about my lighting. I've had these gigantic soft boxes, Pascal, mm. for the last four or five years. I mean, they're fine, but they are huge. You know, they've got this huge bulb in them. They're about um, four, four feet wide and they're a couple of feet deep. They take up so much space. And actually, you can't dim them. They're just, they're one strength all the, all the time. So I've bought this, it's called a newer, and the brand is N double E. W-E-R, newer, and it's an LED key light, and I shall just turn my webcam very briefly. You can see it there, nicely brightening up the sky. Now, it looks like an iPad. It's as thin as an iPad, and it's got the, it's got the black lines around the outside, and it's LED. It takes up hardly any space at all. It fits on top of the um, light stands that my old softboxes stood on top of, and the quality is just amazing believe it or not the setting that it's on at the moment to illuminate my face here is actually i'm just checking eight percent of what it will go to so if i was to turn it up to a hundred percent it would it would probably ab just ab obliterate <laughs> the entire entire screen so it's remarkably good and also you can make it go from the warm end of the spectrum so it's slightly more sort of um warm i guess yellow red color or you can shift it to the other end of the spectrum which is a lot colder so it's more sort of whitey blue um but I, you know we're both tech geeks and as well as film geeks and i just get so excited about these sort of things but yeah a nice bit of light makes me feel good and that camera is going to give me a lot more ability to mess around with live video. So, yes, I'm a happy chap this week. It sounded and look it as well. Um, <laughs> I mean, with such power, this is therefore usable outdoors, literally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and indeed, it comes with an absolutely lovely carry case. Um, you know, it's almost like a little briefcase. It's uh, with, with straps and everything. So, I, you know, they, they make a big thing of the fact that it's it's built for people who get out and do photography and wedding photography and that sort of thing super so, yeah, yeah. yeah and the links will be in the show notes so everybody if you're looking for a new kit and we've been talking Rose and I actually to start to gather all the advice for the last 40 41 episode into a bit of a uh, kind of ebook stroke manual because um, I think by now we've covered pretty much all aspects of being a content producer so it'd be nice to have a easy to follow guide as well so Pascal what have you got for me this week 
So you may recall last week in the news section, you mentioned that the Google conference was going ahead, annual mm -hmm. conference, Google I.O. And well, I mean, it's not as exciting as the uh, Comic-Con San Diego, but as a <laughs> online marketer, you know, once a year to have the heads up from the different product managers from Google, from Google Maps to YouTube, to AI, to Android, to tell you what they have in mind for the forthcoming year. It's so exciting. It's something you get little nuggets of information that can help with the marketing. So I went ahead and registered to the, of course, online conference. And at the same time, I was reminded of a website that Google's been running for a while called Think with Google. I don't know if you come across that one. It's almost like tucked away and it's barely mentioned and I've forgotten about it, but Think with Google, it's almost this website with all their different white papers with their different kind of research projects. They share stats and data from around the world about uh, behavior online and that kind of things. But within Think with Google, they have a number of online checks and mm -hmm. online tools that can really help you understand how to create a better experience with your website. The two I want to mention are designed to stimulate a conversa conversation between you and your developers or you and the team in charge of the website. So it's not going to give you some answers because I think sometimes online checks are very blunt or very vague and you, you don't know really what the answers are. But I think, you know, really Google's saying use that to really start a conversation about a number of things. So the number one online check, which I think people usually are aware of, is check my speed. Um, for the website we know that the number one one of the number one or top parameters for seo is the speed at which your web page loads when somebody's clicking on the link from the search results so you can look at that so what you do is you go online the link is in the show notes you put your url and you get a report again the report is broad it's vague but it's there to stimulate a conversation on speed on personalization and also on the seamless experience. So it will check, you know, things like internal links, it will check images, it will check how long it takes to do anything on the website. And again, whilst it won't give you a direct answer to your question, it's a great way to have a structure to review the site from the point of view of speed and of course from the point of view of a visitor's experience. So that's a lovely one to kind of try out. There is a newer one for B2C or e-commerce website, which I think is also very, very important. And this one is almost a, a, a more, more thorough. So again, the link is in the show notes, but it's called Grow My Store, which I think is in line with the, all the efforts that they, they did through 2020, Roger, of putting you know more information and, and opening things like Google Shopping and the likes. So they look at a number of things. So for example, they will test using AI and of course the understanding of scanning thousands of websites an hour around product information. So they're looking at how you display the details, how you display reviews, whether your e-commerce website is searchable and how does that work? How do you show prices and compare that with the benchmark that they have internally? They also look at personalization. So are you allowing people to open accounts? Are you creating wish list type features? They look at flexible fulfillment. So they check your basket and how it performs, whether you offer delivery and in what format do you offer free return? What kind of payment options do you offer they look at customer service they look at online security and they look at mobile performance so again a machine-based kind of check so it's imperfect but it's lovely to have a 
conversation that would be structured and really stimulated so well on both um, the speed of the website but also your e-commerce website and again I'm surprised that they don't make more of a thing because it's very very helpful and the, the report is very elegant and easy to follow as well. Some good stuff there, Pascal. Mm. Again, it's simple little things like that, isn't it? Especially the test the speed of your own website. It's the sort of things that we forget, but it could be costing us customers. And just playing with these little tools like that can really help make it a better experience for the people that might want to work with us. Mm, So great stuff. Great stuff once again. Once again, indeed. Now, Roger... All this is possible thanks to pioneers and visionaries from the recent and distant past. Shall we move down memory lane into This Week in History? Let's do it. In 1844, Samuel Morse sends the first telegraphic message over a line from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore. The message, What Hath God Wrought, was transmitted to his partner, Alfred Vale. And in 1923, the first patent application on the rotary dial telephone was submitted in France by Antoine Barnet, the heavy-duty fully mechanical phone used real bells. In 1832, Amelia Earhart takes off from Arbor Grace in Canada and will land her plane in Ireland 13 hours 30 minutes later, becoming the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. In 1943, RAF 615 Squadron drops the bouncing bombs invented by Dr. Barnes-Wallace and successfully destroys the dams in the industrial area of Rural Valley, Germany, flooding vital enemy war factories and hydroelectric plants. In 1980, almost exactly three years after the smash hit Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back is released. The pioneering use of special effects technology in the original Star Wars trilogy transformed the movie industry. It did indeed. In 1991, the first web server in history is set up by Tim Berners-Lee in the next cube at CERN in Geneva. The launch of this first server is considered to be the public release of the World Wide Web. In 1991, the first British astronaut, Helen Sharman, launches into space on board Soyuz TM-12. And 10 years later, in 2001, Apple Computer opens the first two locations of their new retail stores in McLean, Virginia and Washington, D.C. In the first weekend, Roger, of opening, the stores attracted nearly 8,000 customers, generating over half a million dollars in sales. Which just goes to show that people actually do like to go to real shops Mm. from time to time. And do you remember they were mocked saying, what are you doing opening a store? What do you know about retail experience? Stick to what you know best and sell computers. And honestly, the the rest of the history, you know, 20 years ago, though, that's uh, already feels a long time. Uh, back in, in, in time. This would be not so bad first, you know, the first lady across the Atlantic with the flying, the first lady British into space, uh, joining the Russian astronauts into, uh, to join the NIA uh, International Space Station. Incredible yeah. times. Yeah, exactly. And the bouncing bombs, um, Barnes-Wallace, you know, that film mm. of of that, The Dam Busters, is obviously an iconic film. Um, quite an old film, obviously, in black and white, with those amazing Lancaster bombers. Just absolutely incredible. And 
even just watching that film, I mean, the film's almost a semi-documentary, isn't it? Because it focuses very much on how they came up with the idea of the bouncing bomb and how initial trials, it just basically mm. went into the water and sank. And then they came up with this idea that it would have to be spinning at a certain speed and then dropped. And, you know, the calculations that they were doing in those days on paper without having anything like a computer or even a calculator to support them. It's absolutely mind-blowing how they managed to come up with something so clever and actually got it to work with such an amazing, devastating effect. And it just transformed the future of the war, didn't it? It did. And I mean, I've seen the movie many times, but every time, you know, that the, the last act, when they do go ahead with um, the operation, even though you know what happens, you're still on the edge, edge of your seat stuff because yeah. the failure of, you know, the campaign would have, you said, really changed the way in which the Second World War would have progressed. But um, we've got some amazing, amazing first, you know, back to Sir Tim Berners-Lee releasing mm. that first webpage via a very, very, you know, kind of old, uh, an archaic version of the web browser, but we had to start somewhere, 1991. So that, to the day, is uh, 30 years ago. And um, kind of just quickly, we won't spend too long. That would be probably a future film of marketing. But in 1990, 21st of May, um, 1980, should I say, Roger, Empire Strikes Back. I mean, that must have felt like a very special day for film goers. I mean... We all know that magical moment in Empire Strikes Back mm. where Darth Vader reveals to Luke Skywalker, I am your father. You know, search your feelings. You know it to be true. And you can't really describe to anybody who's seen that film as many times as we have what it was like the very first time you know, it can never, you can never have that moment again. You know, I've seen Empire Strikes Back in all the Star Wars films multiple times, as you have, <laughs> and they're, they're always good, and I enjoy them always, but you'll never, ever get that same effect that you got when you watched it the very, very first mm. time. And, and maybe there are moments in all films that are like that, that you can only ever experience for the first time once, but that was an absolutely cracking um, moment, wasn't it? Although I do seem to remember at the time being a little bit disappointed that it ended on a cliffhanger. True, um, but hopefully for for us though, that meant there was a follow up. Because yeah. let me take you back to the way in which the news was read out, which is 1977, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. I think ends on a victory, the um, ceremony of the medal being awarded. Although Chewbacca didn't get didn't get one. And as far as film goers were concerned, that was it. Yep. That was it. And then three years later, there is another episode. That must have been so exciting because I'd imagine that the marketing was limited to traditional means as well. And then you're right, you've got the reveal about, you know, that kind of Shakespearean thing about the Darth Vader being the, the father. They introduce Yoda. Um, Princess yeah. Leia falls for Han Solo. You know, see through Peel shines through with uh, his little one-liners and so on. It was, it is to me one the, the best of all the the different kind of episodes. But in 1980, um, I saw it much later. I think I saw it on on VHS probably. The one I went to see at the movies was Return of the Jedi. Mm. 
Mm. But uh, no, for me, it's just thinking about people back then and, you know, being in Ireland, welcoming, you know, Emilia Earhart, which is landing, uh, you know, having kind of crossed the Atlantic. These are just moments that people uh, have experienced for themselves, you know, when finally they get a message that Helen Sharman has reached Mir's International Space Station, mm. the first British astronaut and, and a woman. I just think there are moments in the history where they need to be reminded and we need to kind of stop for a moment and think, what was it like to, to be around or to experience this for the first time? Oh, yeah. I mean, we get on an aeroplane or we used to get on an aeroplane. <laughs> and what does it take? Six or seven hours to fly across the Atlantic from London to New York. And we get a bit grumpy if there's too little legroom or if they don't <laughs> serve us the right sort of champagne if we happen to be traveling in a in a posture cabin. You know, she was doing this thing for the first time. She didn't know whether she was going to crash in the ocean Quite. halfway across or get hit by lightning or... or or that the plane would fail in some way. You know, bravery and excitement all rolled into one thing. It's just incredible to think about it. And that's what's interesting about this set of uh, This Week in History, when you read them again, is about somebody pressing the kind of uh, publish button, literally, mm. you know, from opening the stores for the Apple computer in 2001, all the way to sending that first, you know, Morse uh, telegraphic message using Morse code. It was yes. always about the first. And, and and I think for all of us, we need to kind of realize that we are really the descendants of pioneers who have given us permission to be just a bit more daring. And if I may stretch in on this segment to suggest to all of us, just don't worry, just press the publish yeah. button. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely right. Get it pressed. Smash that button. <laughs> well, in fact, I might just use that as a segue for our next segment, which is the creator shoutouts. So, Roger, who is in the spotlight this week for you? Okay, Pascal, I'm giving a shout out to a gentleman called Richard Roger. So his surname is the same <laughs> as my first name, except he spells his name with a D. So that's R-O-D-G-R. Richard runs a company called Vox Gig, and it's a, it's a company that helps professional speakers to get better. And they offer training and they offer resources and recommendations for tech, similar sorts of things they talk about some of the sorts of things that we do here on on the on the podcast. Richard also runs a podcast called Fireside with Vox Gig, where he interviews well-known speakers and just gets tips out of them, stories, ideas, inspiration, that sort of thing. I've actually been on this podcast uh, a couple of years ago, and it was a really nice experience. He's a great interviewer. He really does have that sort of fireside voice. Mm. Uh, and when you chat to him, you you could almost believe that you were sat in, in, a, in a sort of country house with a, a roaring fire and maybe a couple of glasses of wine. But it's one of those podcasts that I um, that, that he's, he doesn't publish it absolutely every week so sometimes there's there's the odd week missing and and i've just recently had a binge on the latest episodes and i thought it was well overdue a shout out so that's why i'm giving it to you today what i like about the vox, vox gig po podcast in addition to his interview style is that i very rarely heard of any of the speakers that he interviews. Now, that's not a bad thing because sometimes, you know, a lot of these podcasts that do interview speakers, it's the same people, you know, the the big American 
uh, famous speakers that we've all heard interviewed time and time again. And, and I'm not taking anything away from those people. You know, they're excellent at what they do. But what I like about what Richard does is he talks to people like me who aren't internationally famous, but actually who are just as good at coming up with ideas and coming up with stories and coming up with tips. And I just love hearing the sorts of things that these people say. So well done, Richard. Always a pleasure to listen to Fireside with Voxkid podcast. Super. So for me, I've gone back to new beginnings. You know how much I am in terms of you know people starting something brand new. So we have now a new podcast series that has been launched by Darren Winter, Gemma Walton, and Emma Krauss. And what they have done is they meet monthly and have a chat. I mean, when you listen to it, it's almost, Rogers, if you can imagine them around the table with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and they're just catching up, and they are sharing their reflections, their observations about the world of sales and marketing, with, of course, a lean towards digital. That's un- understandable. So the new series is called Like, Click, Share, which I think is, is lovely. And at the time of recording this episode of Two Geeks and Marketing Podcast, they probably have done about three or four now, They've chosen to go monthly, which I think is interesting, you know, and I think what they're going to do is stick to that and meet regularly. And they all bring something a bit different, which is why it's interesting by the three-way conversation. So you've got Darren, almost, you know, the the consultant and the the coach of business owners. Then you've got Gemma, the strategist, the scholar. She knows so much about tactics and how to put together good processes in place to make sure that your communication is done well. She's a pleasure to listen to. Then you've got Emma, the trader, the business owner that shares first-hand experience of using the tools of the time. And the half hour that they spend together goes back very, very quickly, which is also, I think, a very good sign. And they also share stats, they share facts of the month, and they have a wonderful time, as you can tell. So I wanted to wish them best of luck. They don't need the luck, really, frankly. They're so passionate and good at what they do. But for me, it's just celebrating, again, new beginnings. Fantastic. And and again, you can't beat that sort of banter type style of podcast um, where a couple of people who are passionate or three people in this case are passionate about specific subjects get together and just riff off each other a little bit like you and I do about film and marketing. But it's a great format and I wish them every um, success as well. Thank you very much. Well, Roger, you just mentioned it a moment ago. It is time for film marketing. Yes. So, Roger, today we're going to be discussing our 40th film. Now, this is the confusion. This is episode 41, but we are talking about the 40th film. That is because when we launched Two Geeks and Marketing Podcast nearly a year ago, in and around that time, Disney Plus had arrived in kind of UK channels. So we wanted to kind of almost make a celebration of Disney Plus and look at their marketing. So the first film started in episode two. And today we are talking about a very special film, I do believe so. But I thought it would be fun, Roger, if you don't mind for viewers and listeners, but also for you and I, to recap on all 39 films leading mm-hmm. to today's 40th. So... I might even ask Tim to put some lovely music behind. As I mentioned, the first 10, we start with Bond 25, then Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, Wonder Woman 84, True Romance, Tenet. We had Mamma Mia, Flash Gordon, Mulan, and On Her Majesty's Secret Service. 
And then we went into Toy Story, The Goonies, Bill and Ted Face the Music, The Terminator, The Martian, Die Hard, Mission Impossible Fallout, The Lost Boys, A Quiet Place and Speed. Wow, then we've done to The Mandalorian Season 2, Gremlins, Rocky, Ghostbusters, Mad Max Fury Road, The Blair Witch Project, Blade Runner 2049, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Us. And the final ten is The Matrix, Triangle, Highlander, The Woman in Black, Blade, The Game, Nightcrawler, A Few Good Men, and American Werewolf in London. And this week we are going to be talking about... Well, actually, maybe I'll give you a little bit of background as to this film before I actually tell you what it is. Now, Pascal, I'm a big fan of Stephen King the writer, the horror Mm. writer, perhaps the world's most prolific horror writer. And pretty much everything that he's committed to paper has now been filmed. There's a few, uh, there's a few films, uh, books that he's um, written, The Long Walk being one of them, that has yet to be committed to film, but not many of them. But I have to say, I have to say that whilst I think his books are on the whole pretty phenomenal, there aren't that many film adaptations of Stephen King books which I think are actually any good. Obviously, The Shining is one that stands out as being absolutely excellent with Jack Nicholson in it. To my mind, the only other one which absolutely nails it is today's film, and that is The Mist. I have to agree. I have to agree. Like you, I love the book I love, which is why The Mist is working so well, his studies people and how they behave and react to extreme circumstances and challenges and danger but the mist if you put it alongside all the other adaptation just really stands out so much absolutely right and and it's a it is a horror horror film there's some pretty well designed monsters in it um, cr- created by computer graphics and other other um, trickery uh, very convincingly I think but Ultimately, it's one of those films where the monsters are almost incidental to the actual plot because the real monsters are actually the people, aren't they? And that's often the the theme that you see Stephen King explore, taking a small town somewhere lost in some part of America and how the people, sometimes driven by their own religious belief or superstition, just turn on each other. Yeah. Now, I, I again, as I say, Stephen King, one of my favourite authors. Now, The Mist appeared, and I should have checked this. I think The Mist appeared in a uh, an anthology book, which might have been That's called correct. Skeleton Crew. Was it called Skeleton Crew or Different Seasons? One of the two. And it, Stephen King wrote a very long introduction to that book explaining where he got some of his ideas from and I always remember this because I I read the introduction to the book before I read any of the stories and he said that he'd gone with his wife to do the weekly grocery shopping and like a lot of blokes he's not particularly into grocery shopping he just (laughs) obviously goes along to help his wife and he was stood looking down at all these boxes of cereal on both sides of the aisle. And I think he said, I just had this flash, this moment of um, vision in my head of a pterodactyl crashing into those shelves of um, cereal packets. And he said it was that moment, that bang, that light bulb, where he saw that pterodactyl that actually led him to write The Mist. Um, And just goes to show, doesn't it, where the ideas come from. 
I mean, I am a, a, a daydreamer. Denise will tell you that uh, as soon as something doesn't interest me, I'm off thinking about the next <laughs> podcast, whatever. But I must confess, my man would not go that far, which is why Stephen <laughs> King is as successful as he is. But uh, I, I think it's back to that, which is taking normal people. I mean, the the ensemble cast that was pulled together represents all ages all kind of um, you know uh, professions and so on and they are put together into a normal environment a supermarket but then what happens particularly outside but also inside becomes extraordinary and we study literally how one by one there's a breakdown of the group the cohesion how they turn on each other and so on and it is back to the time 2007 a longish film two hours most film would have been a fraction shorter but then mm. again Stephen King's books are so long because he spends time with the character and I am so pleased that we shouldn't be surprised that the director Frank Darabont spent time with the characters I mean you really get to understand who they are what makes them tick and how they're going to behave so 2007 that meant that for all of us we had the pleasure of watching the Shawshank Redemption that's 94 then the Green Mile in 1999 both of them novels and books from Stephen King and then if the name Frank Darabont has become more popular and famous it's because of his work on The Walking Dead 2010 and 11 for season one and two. Yeah, and of course, if you watch The Mist, one of the things you will notice is that the uh, uh, quite a lot of actors who went on to appear in The Walking Dead are actually in The Mist. Laurie Holden, Jeffrey Dillman, yeah. Melissa McBride, etc. Uh, and it's lovely to see them in that in that early uh, in, in their early incarnations. But it is a big cast, uh, and and as you say, that they're, they're they're trapped inside this supermarket. Uh, this mist descends because of some uh, experiment that's gone wrong at a local um, research laboratory and horrible monsters start moving around in the mist and, and, mm. and causing mayhem. But the film really is about how the people who are trapped in that supermarket, they form alliances, uh, they try to decide whether to go outside, whether to fight back or to... And, and I think one of the, one of the women... Um, almost becomes like a uh, a preacher and and tries to convince tries to convince some of them that this is all god's will and they're you know there's this really quite horrible scene where she convinces the people in the supermarket to sacrifice one of the children almost to to god to get god to stop doing what he's doing and you know it it Somebody described this as a bit like Lord of the Flies, but set in a supermarket. And, and, and it's a really scary thought as to how the things that bind society together could quite easily fall down in a situation like this. And when I watch a film like this, I sit there and think, God, this really could happen. And, and indeed, you could argue that Frank Darabont explored the, the, the same theme in A Walking Dead, yeah. where literally saying, well, the, the undead are nowhere near as bad as the, the living, particularly when you move on to the, the next seasons with yes. things like, as he called the, the governor or you know, the characters that were really quite nasty. But yes. back to your point, there's a, there's a lovely um, line from The Sun. So for me, the reason why I wanted to see the movie when it came out was two things. And it was a Stephen King uh, adaptation, and I was hopeful that it would be a good one, despite the fact that I'd been disappointed many times. But for me, the lead actor, Thomas Jane, 
I just really like his work. But also people like William Sadler was in the film. Mm. Now, William Sadler oddly played the bad guy in a movie we reviewed many months ago in Die Hard. And what was surprising about The Mist is that there were some characters or actors you knew and you had some expectation by the kind of characters that we play. And every time you got surprised, so you had, for example, Toby Jones, who was playing the kind of... um, you know, uh, petite and not particularly a threatening um, store manager, but proves to be almost a hero of the piece yeah. who is, um, you know, very good with, with a gun and very authoritative. So you had all these big surprises, but talking surprises, and I'm mindful that through the research, I've discovered that people have not watched The Mist or are discovering The Mist today. Um, we can't talk about the ending beyond saying, that's what a horror film feels like when you have an ending like the one that Frank Darabont and his and his team pulled together. Yeah, I, I was going to talk about the ending, but you're right, Pascal. We really can't give too much of it away, other than the fact that it could well be one of the most bleak endings to any <laughs> film I've ever, ever seen. And this is interesting because the actual novella of this um, film, the, the actual written version of The Mist... It, the film follows the, the, the book almost paragraph by paragraph, except the ending. Now, the ending we see in the film is not the ending that we see in the Stephen King book. Mm. And I, I don't know why Darabont messed around with that. I think it's perhaps that the book ended on a sort of, they get out of the supermarket, they get into a car, they drive off into the mist, and it sort of ends on a cliffhanger. Do they make it? Don't they make mm. it? And we never know, I guess, because he never wrote a sequel to it, obviously. And maybe Frank Darabont thought, I can't really just leave it like that, so I have to come up with something genuinely shocking to f- finish this film on. Before we move on to marketing, I want then to build on that point just now, because I think what you're talking about is making decisions, creative decisions, yes. you know, directional decisions. So that was decision number one. Let's put together an ending that is obviously new, that got obviously the thumbs up from Stephen King because it suits, you know, the horror genre of this film. Next decision was around the ensemble cast and, and so on, but also... 2007 was the beginning of using digital film as opposed to print and physical film. Mm-hmm. And when Frank Darabont did the test, he basically declared, this is looking far too clinical. I need something a lot more gritty. So mm-hmm. we're going to stick to using normal physical prints. The next thing that he did was, and I think it was also for speed of production, because this was produced in a space of a couple of months, if that. Yeah. And when you watch the film, Roger, you'll agree it's a complex story. There's a lot going on, not to mention the special effects. So he actually... Um, put together a crew that was from TV production background where everything is very, very, very fast. Um, the small uh, handheld cameras are being used as opposed to things on the tripod and so on. So we now know through, obviously, many documentaries and interviews that have been done by the MIST that the team behind The Shield were very much instrumental in capturing the sound and images of The MIST. Yes, yes. And... Again, they, they, when they lo- re- released it on DVD, they put a black and white version of the film. Now, I have mixed feelings about that. 
Um, I actually thought it was a pretty genius idea because there's been so many um, you know, famous black and white horror films. Some of the early zombie films were in black and white. I'm not sure. I, 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 found, I find myself torn. I think some scenes in it benefit from it being in black and white, but perhaps some of the scenes with the special effects and the monsters don't quite cut it in black and white as they do in colour. No, I would agree. Uh, I, I love black and white. I think there's something purely magical about it. And it worked really well with the actors with the, when the tension was building or when mm. actually it all went pretty crazy, as you say, with that lady that took on the role of the, the preacher. But the moment you had the monsters, although I will say to people who have not seen the movie, you don't see them a lot. It's really cleverly mm. done. It's really quite scary, the way in which they're revealed. But each time they came in, then you were taken back to, oh, this is 2007, and the black and white kind of magic moment just disappeared so mm. I'm pleased they did and we know that Frank Darabont vision was a black and white to pay homage to people like George Romero and many others but um, I think you know the color version is certainly better definitely so what about the marketing then all right well let's take it from the top if you don't mind you know Roger and for mm. and listeners it makes sense to look at it chronologically so what they did from the marketing point of view, which we don't do enough, all of us as content marketer, is to start talking about the film way, way before. Way before. Before it started. So if you think that filming starting in spring 2007, in the autumn, if not summer of 2006, the press releases were out announcing the the kind of the the conversion of from book to, to screen, talking about Frank Darabont, talking about Thomas Jane, even early stage of negotiation so that that really gives a, a lead time for audiences to, to get excited and i think that's an important first lesson and then lots of interviews mm. on tv and in the print media and, and again they they focused in on this the story is less about the monsters outside than it is about the monsters inside you know the people that you're stuck with your friends and neighbors breaking under the strain that was quite an intriguing concept that they were putting out and i think that even people who hadn't read the book would have been sucked in by that intriguing premise because ultimately the mist like many other films like of that style it's about survival it's about thinking, well, what would I do in that situation? So that's why I remember being at the cinema, watching on the big screen, and you're really taken by it. But I think also it's about sticking to the core message and not mm. deviating, which I think is another lesson we can take away. So then you move into being in production. And back to 2007, Frank Darabont, which is really at heart an entrepreneur, did something very, very new which is not new today, 2021 sensitivities, but 2007, he recorded video diaries, right? which at the time he called Webisode, which is quite charming. But 2007, Roger, the interweb, as I call it, you know, um, sometimes, wasn't is not what it is today. So we a year barely into YouTube, we only a handful of years into Facebook. So what they did was they recorded those webisodes, but they sent the files, as is really, the yeah. .mov files, to bloggers and film critics and, and you name it. So everybody got a little, a tiny little video file that they could then add and publish onto their own website and blog. Absolutely. I mean, it, ahead of its time it was mm. genius wasn't it now of course it's what everybody does <laughs> yeah, absolutely and then there was clips shown at san diego comic-con and the bloggers and youtubers went absolutely crazy about it 
And what is interesting about the clips that they've shown, so this was not trailers at all, Roger. These were actually extract from mm -hmm. a uh, edited version, but mm -hmm. the clips were only showing the people. So back to mm -hmm. the message that they shared during the interview stage a few months earlier, it's all about the people stuck with each other and turning each other. And that's what people saw. So they didn't see the monsters. They didn't see really why there was a mist and hence keeping the intrigue going. Absolutely right. And uh, I, I think that was a great way to do it. You know, you're saving something up to be surprised about when you actually get to the cinema. Even even the people who've read the book, you know, and I said that Stephen King had this image of a pterodactyl going down the, um, you know, when I read the actual book and he describes the monsters in the book, my interpretation of the monsters in my head will be different to yours. Mm. Uh, so you still have that element of surprise when you get to the cinema because they may not be the way you envisage them to turn out to be, but that was all part of the of the the pleasure of the horror, as, as they say. Then we move on to the early screenings, which is usually you know part of the. Uh media pack when you publish a film so they managed to show a first cut at the film festival show east now we are into the autumn of 2007 a month before the premiere in new york and what was interesting when obviously friend darabon showed this screening almost like a vip treatment that's when the organizers surprised him with a audience awards for the shawshank <laughs> redemption and the green mile and i was thinking I'm sure that was meant uh, well, you know, but when you're the director and you just be knee deep in creating the mist, and then people said to you, by the way, um, literally, you know, all those years ago, you made those two amazing films, and here's an award for it. It must be a bit <laughs> bizarre. I mean, I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll take it well, but I was thinking that must have been a bit odd to be on that stage at that time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Frank Darabont. You know, did you know that Frank Darabont had the rights to make the film of The Long Walk, which is the Stephen King book, which is one of the, the ones that hasn't been filmed yet? Right. And I always thought he is absolutely ideal to make that film mm. but unfortunately let the uh, apparently let the uh, rights lapse so whether that film will ever get made I don't know but for a while I thought that that was going to be Frank Darabont's next big film mm. might come back and then yeah. obviously come November 2007 we are into the premiere in New York and then the release of the film at the time which I thought was very interesting they had three different trailers and I wonder whether it was for different audiences or different time of the day, depending on who's watching on TV and at the cinema. They were all cut differently. And if you are intrigued and interested, I would definitely encourage you to get hold of the DVD or Blu-ray um, edition of The Mist because they are there. You'll see for yourself this very interesting effort. And they all three had different strap lines as well, Roger. So again, they were going after different target audiences with their different trailers, weren't mm. they? Yeah. So the, the first trailer, there was uh, the one that I think people are aware of, which is um, there is nothing out there, nothing in the mist, and then, but what if you're wrong? Yeah. <laughs> which I think plays to your fear of, you know, stepping into the dark or into the mist. The um, second trailer, looking at the notes, what if the world you know disappeared before your eyes? So Absolutely. intriguing. And then it came without warning and transformed a town. I quite like that one, actually. Yeah. It's very, they're all very cryptical. Mm. They're all very intriguing. And again, you know, hint at the scares and the horror to come. 
And here we are, literally 14 years later, still talking about it. People are still writing uh, about it. They are doing YouTube retrospectives about the film because I think it's just simply a story well told, told about people that we can relate to, but generally done by people who love making films and their passion started from the marketing, which I think is not always the case, actually, you know, when you and I think about all the different films that we watch in our lives. Yeah, and normally what happens when we do these um, reviews is that I end up watching the film a couple of nights or even the night before we actually do the review. Funnily enough, my wife and I watched The Mist not that long ago, so right. this time I, I didn't need to watch it again to prepare. But what I am going to do having had this conversation, is I'm going to go and read the book again because I haven't nice. read the book version for a very long time. Excellent. Well, I was very much looking forward to talking about The Mist with you, Roger, and uh, this conversation has not disappointed in any ways. Just remind you that the tagline for the film, which I think says it all to close this segment, belief divides them, Mystery surrounds them, but yes. fear changes everything. <laughs> Great stuff. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. This was episode 41. Until the next one, please go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Pintoni, and he was Roger Edwards. Take care for now. Mm-hmm.